If you have a Bible, would you please open it up to the book of Mark? The book of Mark chapter 7. We are in a series in the book of John. Please don't be confused. I know I'm going to Mark. But we are in a series in the book of John. And we've been reading John together. And before Easter, we were in a series called Jesus is Reality, where we look at the first half of the book of John. And the first half of the book of John is really chapters 1 through 12. And chapters 1 through 12 have to do with Jesus and his ministry and his teaching and his identity and who he is. And John telling the story in a very specific way on Jesus being ultimate reality. Um, To both the Jews and the Greeks, Jesus being ultimate reality. Oh, by the way, if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and we can get one in your hands right now. So just a couple of people. Just raise your hand if you need a Bible. They're free. You can take them home. All that stuff. Um, Mark chapter 7. Um, so we're, we're, we've been in that series. So after Easter, we did John 11. Last week, Pastor Dave Daly did John chapter 12. And John chapter 12 is the turning point in the gospel narrative where Mary anoints Jesus' feet with oil, costly perfume, and her hair. And then um, uh, Judas, who would later betray Jesus, kind of snarkly says, why did she waste money on Jesus' feet? That money could have been given to the poor. But John adds a thing. It's like, yeah, but he liked to steal the money. That's really why he was saying that. Um, but Jesus said, no, let her do this. Because she's actually anointing me or preparing my body for burial. And this is where the book of John turns, right here on this hinge. John now turns like Jesus is preparing to die. And what he will do is he will pull his disciples away from chapters 13 on to prepare them for his death. And so the, the book of John, though it's been covering maybe two and a half years, now slows down to cover about, about a week. And Jesus pulls his disciples away in what's known as the upper room discourse and teaches them what life with God is. That he will leave and he will send the Holy Spirit and to abide in him and what that looks like. All these things about his prayer for them and he pulls them away and teaches them what life with God is. So now we are in a series called Life with God. Does that make sense to everybody? You guys follow along? Nine of you are here. Great. Um, So what I wanted to do today is as a little bridge into, as we, before we dive headlong into, into the latter half of John and talk about life with God, I wanted today to talk about what life without God is. Because life with God and Jesus having to pull his disciples away to teach them life with God assumes that we need to learn how to live life with God because we don't live life with God. And that, in essence, is what the scriptures call sin. This is a very old-fashioned church Bible religion word called sin. And I want to make that word accessible to you and show you what that word means through the scriptures. And I want to use this story through Mark because what I think happens is that Jesus is trying to free people to live life with God and every single thing that gets in the way, he goes out to destroy and demolish. And he does that right here in Mark chapter 7. He's trying to keep religion from getting in between Um, us and God, Um, how we turn good things into just really horrible, wicked things. Um, But in essence, as we'll talk today, how we ourselves get in the way um, with with God. We ourselves are are, are kind of the problem. This is the story that Jesus tells. Let me read it to you, and then I'll pray. Mark chapter 7, verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered round Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled. Defiled, that's a key word, so remember that word, defiled. That is, Mark explains, unwashed hands. In parentheses, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing. 
holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as washing cups, pitchers, and kettles. He's like, they just wash everything. You with people with OCD are like, I really like the Pharisees. They're like, keep everything clean. Verse 5, so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Why don't your disciples wash their hands? He replied, Isaiah was right. This is Jesus replying. Isaiah, Old Testament prophet in the scriptures that they would have known, the Jewish Bible. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people... Honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely, merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding to human traditions, Jesus says. And he continued. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, and he's quoting again from their scriptures... Moses himself said, honor your father and mother and anyone who causes their father and mother to be put to death. Um, anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that uh, what they might have been used to help their father and mother is Corbin, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like this. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone understand, uh, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Remember I told you to hold on that word defile? After he had left the crowd, entered the house, the disciples asked him about this parable. And he says, are you so dull, he asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. That is Jesus. This is God's word. Let me pray. God, we, I desire this morning to rightly um, speak about this, this very important topic. So I ask God that you would guide us, that you would lead me in communicating these truths, that you'd give us hearts to receive them, faith to live into them, God. And I, I pray that we would all approach this very humbly. I'm very humbled before you, God. Um, and I ask God that you would speak. We ask Holy Spirit that you would speak today. In Jesus' name, amen. So today I do, I want to talk about sin, and the best illustration I can give you of sin and human depravity is the selfie stick, <laughs> also known as the narcissistic. That's clever. That, that's good, right? I didn't think of that. I got that. It was somewhere. You know it's true. You know, you, you judge everyone you see using one of those things. Even if you own one, you, you judge them. Even if, you're, if you have one in your pocket, you judge the people using them. And museums are banning these things. It's like your selfishness is causing, causing others harm. Therefore, we are banning all selfie sticks. And even South Korea finds all unauthorized uses of the selfie stick in public. Well done. <laughs> That's so good. Now, I'm kind of 
joking, but Jesus seems to say something like this. He said there's something wrong with religion, but there's also something wrong with humanity. There's also something wrong with life. There's something wrong with our world. There's something really broken happening, and it has to do with the self. The evil lies within And this is what Jesus is getting to. He's like the source of the problem that wreaks havoc on our world every day has something to do with something inside of us. It's not necessarily the outside in, but the inside out. And so from our text today, what we learn is we get, Jesus gets to the heart of the problem of sin, where it issues from. He gets to the heart of the problem with evil, and where evil lies. He gets to the heart of the problem of, with religion. He gets to the heart of the problem of irreligion. He gets to the heart of the problem with us. And what we see Jesus saying is that the problem of sin doesn't lay outside of us. It's not society that we live in that's the problem. Or cultural environment that we have. Or our, or our current political situation. As Russian novelist Alexander Jolzenitsyn. Jol, I don't really know. How? Someone said it. Thank, oh, yes. I, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Russian, sorry. Gradually, I butchered it. I had it like pronounced on my notes, but I'm like, I never do it right, so it doesn't matter. Gradually, it was dis- disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. And through all human hearts. The problem isn't out there. The problem isn't our our society. Or even if you happen to read the paper or blogs about our city. And what's been going on the last five years. The problem isn't out there. The problem really is in here. And this is what Jesus is saying in Mark 7. That the problem. That the evil is lying within all of us. So the story opens with the Pharisees. Questioning Jesus and his disciples. To why they didn't. Wash before they ate. Why don't you guys wash? And why don't your, you and your disciples wash before you eat? And this is not about hygiene, necessarily. And I'm all about hygiene. I think it's very, very important. I'm all about antibacterial wipes and sprays and pumps and the whole nine. You get on a plane and you wipe down your whole seat with antibac stuff. That's important. I, I was sitting next to someone on a plane last month, and she pulled out antibac stuff, and I did, and we're like, <laughs> like, this is a good... We're going to have a, this is, a, this is good. And we're just like, all our, like our space is clean. And we just, it was awesome. It was the best. These Pharisees weren't talking about hygiene. They wanted to know, why don't your disciples wash and make themselves clean? Or they were saying, in their, in, in their tradition, why don't you make yourselves acceptable to God? You make yourself acceptable to God by something um, external. Basically what these religious leaders believed is that you were cleansed internally by some external action. You did something physical and it cleansed the spiritual part of you. And in their system of belief, once you cleansed the spiritual part of you, then, the, then, then and only then were you acceptable before God. And this is why they were so offended at Jesus and his disciples. If he claimed to be this great man from God, why didn't his disciples make themselves clean before God? That's, that's, the, that's where this whole argument centers on. Look at verse 3. This uh, uh, parenthetical thing that Mark adds. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing. Holding to the tradition of the elders. Tradition of the elders is an important part of here. 
when they come to the marketplace, um, from, sorry, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. They observe many other traditions, such as washing cups, pitchers, kettles, so on and so forth. They were even known to wash, wash couches, wash walls, just cleanse everything to be acceptable before God. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating, with their food, with, eating their food with defiled hands? What they saw, they saw sin like, a, like pollution, like spiritual germs. And so they, they, they believed that if you, if, you're, if you walked somewhere and you touched something and then, then your hands were polluted, and then you, your hands were polluted, and then you grabbed uh, food, and then your food was then polluted, and then you would take a bite of your food, and the food would go inside of you and pollute your soul. Does that make sense? That's what they believed. That, that, so because I've touched or I've been around things that are unclean, I have to wash myself, so whenever I eat something, I don't get dirty from the inside. I don't take something from the outside, and I'm dirty on the inside. Now, this is an important conversation to listen in on. This is very, very important. We might not have the same views today. We might not think that what we eat makes our souls dirty. Unless you're vegan, and then you judge everyone for eating not like you. You're like, your soul is dirty by eating that thing. But everyone else, we don't really think like that, right? The reason why this is an important conversation to listen in on is is this, the issue of defiled hands and eating with defiled hands has brought up a whole bigger issue of where is the source of defilement. So though we might not believe that what we eat with, with dirty spiritual hands affects our souls necessarily, we not, might not believe that, this brings up a larger argument of how does our souls get defiled? How does the world get defiled? How do things happen like this? How are we unclean? Where does sin come from? What's really wrong with the world? What's wrong with society? What's wrong with religion? What's wrong with us? And Jesus says in verse 6 and 7, he replied, Isaiah was right. Isaiah said this in, in chapter 29 of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, hypocrites. And he quotes, these people, speaking of them, honor me with their lips. They have all the functionality of spirituality. But their hearts are far from me. Every single law given in the Old Testament, which that they, they tried to adhere to, was supposed to get after the heart. It was supposed to, to like reign in the heart and get the heart postured and oriented towards God. All Levitical law, all uh, laws in, the, in Exodus were to reorient the heart towards a love and a trust and a faith in God's word. That's what it was supposed to do. But what they did was they replaced a love for God with a love for self. And so Jesus says that you do these, all these things that look very, very religious and look very, very spiritual, but your hearts are not close to God. That was the intent of the law. That's what it was supposed to do. It was supposed to, to reign in the heart. They worship me in vain and their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus says that the source of the problem with all religion that we make up, with all systems that we come up with to try and change things, the root problem is that we have replaced God with self. That we have replaced God with self. And this has always been the Bible's claim to what's wrong with the world. I know, I know, I know it takes on different iterations throughout the centuries. But the, the, the root problem has always been we've replaced God with self. One commentator writes about the Pharisees 
um, what the Pharisees were doing during the time of Jesus. He says this. His name is Sinclair Ferguson. Pharisees had replaced God's love with self-love and God's law with man's tradition. They replaced God's love with self-love and God's law with man's traditions. Having made themselves their own gods, they were insisting that others follow them or perish. That's what they were doing. By replacing God with religion. We have our own ways. We might not do that like that necessarily. We're like, we might not say we're not, we're, we're not necessarily religious here. We're not religious in this, in this city. We're not religious in this church. We don't replace God with religion. But our ways are different. We still do replace God with self. May, maybe ours is even actually more explicit than that. We don't replace God with religion. We replace God with the actual self. We don't, need, we don't do this by religion anymore. We've taken religion out. We're like, we don't need religion. We replace God with us. David Brooks wrote a book recently called The Road to Character. This actually just came out. I wish this book was out when we were doing our Proverbs series. It's a very, very good book. In it, he writes, as a New York Times columnist and pundit, that he has noticed a cultural shift over the last 50 years, he writes. A shift from the small me, he says, to the big me. And the shift to the special self. And this is what he writes. And it's not on the screen. I'm just going to read it to you because it's not that long, but I, didn't wanna, I just don't want to put it on the screen. As I looked around, this is him uh, researching for his book. As I looked around uh, the popular culture, I kept finding the same messages everywhere. You are special. Trust yourself. Be true to yourself. Movies from Pixar and Disney are constantly telling children how, wonderfully, how wonderful they are. Commencement speeches are larded with the same cliches. Follow your passion. Don't accept limits. Chart your own course. You have a responsibility to do great things because you are so great. This is the gospel of self-trust. As Ellen DeGeneres put it in a 2009 commencement address, my advice to you is to be true to yourself and everything will be fine. Celebrity chef Mario Batali advised graduates to follow your own truth expressed uh, consistently by you. Anna Quindlin urged another audience to have the courage to honor your character, your intellect, your inclinations, and yes, your soul by listening to its clean, clear voice instead of following the muddied messages of a timid world. In her mega-selling book, Eat, Pray, Love, Elizabeth Gilbert wrote that God manifests himself through, quote, my own voice from within my own self. God dwells within you as you yourself exactly the way you are, end quote. This is what he writes. He writes that every, every generation has a way of doing it, but today, this generation, it's explicit in replacing God for the special self. He doesn't say God necessarily. He just says that we have become obsessed with the special self. And I am saying that we replace God with the special self. Every generation and every culture has a way of doing it, but it's the same thing. It's the essence of sin is replacing God with self. That we honor God with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. And we can say that we are spiritual. We can say that we meditate, that we do soul cycle, that we are religious, that we go to church, that we are even in a small group. But unless we are act acutely aware of this fact, we can be in serious danger. That the root problem lies within. That the problem with the world can start somewhere in here 
What Jesus was saying was sin is not the result of our environment. Sin and evil start in our own hearts. This is where sin and evil really come from. Mark 7.14 says, this is what Jesus says in, in verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to them and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Remember how I said this conversation brought up a whole bigger conversation about the source of sin. And this is what Jesus is getting at. Like, what? it's not what you bring in, it's what actually comes out. It's, it's deep in here. Look at verse 18. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into your heart, but into the, their stomach, and then out of the body. And Jesus said, all foods are clean. He went on. What comes out of a person? What defiles them? For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, that sexual immorality comes, that theft happens, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these are evil, and they come from inside, and they've defiled a person. Jesus is saying that the real source of the problem is not the law itself or dirty hands or unclean food or unclean places or society or fame and our celebrity culture. Jesus said that there is something fundamentally wrong inside of us. Jesus said all foods are clean and all hearts are unclean. All foods are clean and all hearts are unclean. Just as a heart the heart organ pumps blood into all areas of our body. So our spiritual heart, the center of our human personality, which determines our action and inaction, is corrupted and pumps sin into all areas of life. And this was revolutionary because this is what it means. It means that we are, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because of what we touch or see or drink or eat. Those things, in those areas, we do those things because we're sinners to the core. Bef because before we ever touched that forbidden thing that we know we never should have touched, sin lay in our hearts. Before we ever looked upon impurity with our eyes, our inner soul, our inner eye was impure. Before we ever drank or ate, our hearts were already filled with sin. Now, I will say this though. Humanity is capable of a lot of good. Christian or not Christian. We are capable of a lot of great things. I am not teaching here that humanity can do nothing good or nothing right. That's not true. That is not true. We know that. We live in a city that has a lot of common grace elements to it. A lot of beauty that comes from people unredeemed. What I am trying to say is what Immanuel Kant said. Out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. There is something about sin that taints everything. Or to take it a step further, there's something in us, we taint everything. We take things like religion and spirituality and church and we destroy it. We take things like human flourishing and economics and we mess it up. We take things like sex and we destroy it. And we make it not about the way that God has made us and wired us. We don't make human flourishing about how God made us and wired us. We don't get back to like, this is what life is to be about. This is what religion and truth and church is to be about. We make it about us and we destroy it. We get inside of a great church and we mess it up. We get inside of a great relationship and we mess it up. 
Like something in us messes it up. The heart of our problem is us. And because we make it about us. And by the heart, the Bible means the center of who you are. The heart is where motive and affections lie. All of that, that part of you is where evil lies. Sin and evil come from within. So Jesus tells the Pharisees and the disciples, have you forgot about God? Have you lost your mind and forgot about God? You know the scriptures, but you've moved God outside of the scriptures. You made the scriptures about you. This book is not a book about you. This is a book about God. And what, what when we do is we make this book about us, and we can't read it right. It gets all messed up. We're like, well, but how do I, but what about, it's like, well, it's not about you. It's about who God is. And when we read it like that, it's a paradigm shift. And it's not about us. And these Pharisees were making it about their traditions, all the Old Testament law, the traditions of men. They made it about themselves and not about God. They honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. Now, this is important. This started in Genesis chapter 3. I do this often. I go to Genesis because it's very, very important. It's where the Bible starts. If you've ever, I, I, I encourage you this week to read through Genesis 1, 2, 3. Actually, if you are brave, read chapter, Genesis chapter 1 through 11. There's a cycle that happens Genesis chapter 1 through 11. And after chapter 11, you are left to think, how in the world is God going to redeem this mess? And it's supposed to read that way. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you, you hear this refrain. This might be a review for some of you, but you have to listen. Because I have your attention, because I have the mic. Um, Genesis 1 and 2, repeat this refrain. And you might, uh, it might resonate with you if you hear this. Uh, God uh, created it, and he saw it was good. God made it, and he said he was good. God made it, and he saw it was good. Okay? That, that refrains over and over again. God saw it. And it was good. God saw that what he made it, and it was good. And it was good. And it was good. And that refrain is repeated over and over and over again through Genesis 1 and 2. He saw it, and it was good. God created everything good. Sky and light and night and day and the sea and dry ground and animals and mammals and birds and man and woman. And everything was very good. And then God put man, uh, man and woman in charge and gave them access to all the good that he created. And Adam and Eve were participants and had the privilege of enjoying the very good story of God. This was called Shalom, the good of God. Adam and Eve had all the good they would have ever needed, but they wanted more. Enter Genesis chapter 3. And there's a snake, and later on in Revelation, he's revealed to be this snake is actually the Satan, devil. Um, snake goes and tempts Adam and Eve. And the way that he, he tempts them is that God said, um, eat of any tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. If you eat of this tree, you will die. You will be cut off from the life of God. You will cut off, be cut off from the tree of life. You'll be cut off from life and fellowship with me. You'll be cut off from shalom. You don't want to eat from this tree. And the serpent comes in and tempts Adam and Eve and says, did God really say? And tempts her just to just flirt with the idea that this thing that God said is death might actually be not death. It might actually be good. And then the whole narrative turns on this one verse right here. It all builds up to this. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food. That. When we read that we're like, whoa, whoa, wait. I thought that God determined what's good. God saw it and God saw it was good. God saw it and saw it was good. Now this woman goes, uh, this is good. No, but God didn't say that was good. God said that was death. 
No, this is good. But that will kill you. No, it's good. The, this whole narrative, as it turns on this, it's just, it's just always good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some of it, ate, also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. She's, she is not only assuming God's place here by saying, and Adam, uh, and, and Adam, Adam and Eve assuming God's place here, saying, this is good, but they're calling good what God called deadly. This is what this means. They thought we can, be good, we can be good apart from God. We can decide for ourselves what good and bad are rather than trust someone else's judgment. I don't need someone else to tell me what good is. I don't need God, you, to tell me what good is. I know what good is. So we're good, God, and we don't need you. See, I think that you and I, we're, we're really good with God as long as God respects us and doesn't trample on our rights and tell us what to do. God, if you honor me, I will honor you. If you honor the things that I call good, if you honor the things that I, and the way that I see the world, then I will serve you, and then I will worship you. But if we ever cross paths, psh, I'm just... I never really understood Genesis chapter 11, uh, the Tower of Babel story, if you've ever read it. It's interesting reading, you should read it this week. Um, I mean, I knew it from a theological standpoint. What was happening at these people with all the same language were building this giant tower up to the heavens and they were making a name for themselves. Not a name after God, after Yahweh God, but a name for themselves. And I understood that God came and confused their language. And, but I just never understood the emotional weight of it. I read it and I'm like, okay, well these people are trying to build a big building. God's like, no. I never understood the emotional weight of Genesis 11. Until last week, or this week, I was at a, a concert. Um, uh, there's a, an artist called Hosier, and he was in town for three nights. And my wife and I went. And he has a song called Take Me to Church. And I've told you before, it's not about church. So if you do think it's about church. Like this song, I listen to it on the way to church every Sunday, it's awesome. Um, <laughs> the song's about sexuality and, and religion. It's a very spiritual song. And in his own words, it's about the church and religion and ultimately God keeping people from who they are. Keeping people from loving who they want to love and having sex with whom they want to have sex with when they want to have it. And God and religion and church telling us what to do. And the chorus of the song is amen. And it's sung, it's sung with like this grit with almost this undertone of anger, but it's strangely beautiful. I mean, I, it's really beautiful. And during that part of the song, and as the third night of a sold-out crowd at the Masonic Theater in San Francisco, ha hands everywhere were in the air. Some were holding phones, but plenty of them weren't. Hands in the air, singing loudly, more I, louder than Hosier's amplified sound was, louder than I would even say I've heard this church sing, though this church sings really loud. Everyone singing from the top of their lungs, Amen. Amen. They were singing it. And then I understood it. Like that moment, I understood, I understood Genesis chapter 11. A massive group of people in religious fashion, worshiping not creator God, but people with their created mouths and their created hands singing a refrain that belongs to God alone. Amen. Amen to God? No, not amen to God. Amen to us. Let us be us. 
Don't tell us what to do. Let me be me. Let me love and serve what I want to serve. Let me alone. Amen? Amen. That's what they were singing. So that song was very emotional for me that night and spiritual for me, but not in the way others were experiencing. Like I understood Genesis 11. I never understood it before. Amen. We don't want what you want for us. We're sick and tired of you telling us what to do. We will do our own thing in our own way. Amen. What the fall was in Genesis 3 was a hijacking of the story of God. Was taking God's good story and making it about us. St. Augustine called sin how humanity is curved inward on himself. Curved inward. This is what Genesis 3 is about. This is what the Pharisees were doing in Mark 7. I'm not letting religion off the hook here. Jesus didn't. When we make anything about us, religion or church or whatever spirituality about us, it's wrong. And what Jesus was doing here in Mark 7 is that they were saying, we know God's word, but we're hijacking that story and we want everyone to live up to our traditions, our laws, our rules, our story. And we do this in a hundred times in a million ways every day. I do this. We think we know what's good apart from God. And that's the essence of sin. And why, why is this so offensive? Why does, why does the whole thing, the whole Bible, hinge on this brokenness that happens in chapter 3 and then all things made new in Revelation? Why does the whole story seem to hinge on these things? A tree of life here and a tree of life here. A, a, a garden in a city. Like why does it hinge this way? Why is sin so offensive to God? It's because sin creates a reality. Something that God sees, he sees sin. And he cannot look upon it in approval. He cannot look upon sin and go, okay, that's, that's good enough. Because he's absolutely loving. He's holy. He knows how jacked up it makes us. He knows how, what, what when he creates things good, and he goes, when I create things good, it's really, really, really good. It's so good, in fact, that it's perfection, and you will be haunted by it for the rest of your life. It's really good. And when we vandalize that shalom, when we mess that shalom up, he cannot just go, oh, whatever. He has to do something. He goes toward it. He, he's not like, he goes toward Adam and Eve when they sin. They're like, who, he said, who told you you were naked? He makes provision for them. He's actually entering in, going after them when they're running away from him and hiding from him, like we do with God today. We want God to approve what we approve of, and we whine when he doesn't approve of it. And then we reject him. I want God to approve of this. I want God to approve of what I, what I want to do. And when we don't, we're like, oh, I, don't like really, I don't really like God anymore. And then we reject him. And the ways of God are not arbitrary. Genesis 1 and 2, the sin that happens in Genesis 3 vandalizes the good of God. It vandalizes true human flourishing. Evangelizes how God truly created us, and we're all haunted by this memory of perfection, why we all want to get there, why we're working in our fields right now to bring peace and perfection to the world because we're all haunted by the idea of it. The best definition I can give you of sin is the vandalism of shalom. And sin creates something. Sin creates a thing. Sin creates a reality. 
And sin doesn't just create a reality, but a specific and particular kind of reality. When you and I sin, something concrete happens. Has someone ever done something really, really horrible to you, and you're in the same room with them, and you're looking at them, and there's something in the room that wasn't there before? Sin. It creates reality. It creates something that has to be removed. Our nation has sinned, and it creates reality that has to be dealt with. And we all talk about it. Companies create sin, and it has to be dealt with. It has to be dealt with by courts and law and public. It, sin creates something that has to be dealt with. The Bible uses this kind of language. Sin as weight. You are burdened by sin. It, you, you're heavy laden with it. Cain in Genesis 4, when he kills his brother and sins, he says, that punishment is greater than I can bear. I cannot bear the weight of my sin. David in Psalm 32 says that when he didn't confess his sins, his bones wasted away and God's hand was heavy on him. His strength was dried up in the heat of summer. Sin as weight. You might feel so heavy with the, with the weight of the world, the sin of the world, or the sin of yourself, and you feel the weight of it. Sin creates reality. We also know sin is stain. Your sins have made you unclean or stained you. Your sins, Isaiah says, are crimson red. The, the Pro Proverbs or Psalms talks about we are men of unclean lips. We are people of unclean lips. Give us clean hands and a pure heart. Sin is stained. When we sin, there's an uncleanness. We feel filthy. Sin is debt. We fall into debt when we're sin. We become enslaved. That's what Exodus is all about. We're enslaved to it. And the wages of sin is death, Romans says. Death and, and as the payment of sin is a metaphor. But also sin is being cut off. You are cut off from the life of God. You are exiled. You are kicked out of the garden. You live east of Eden. Paradise is lost. So when the Bible talks about forgiveness, it says that you have been cleansed from sin. You have, the burden of sin has been lifted. The debt of sin has been paid in full. You are brought back into right relationship with God. That's the language that the Bible uses of forgiveness. But how does this happen? You can't pay your own debt. It's too much. The wages of sin is death. But we try. We try to balance out the bad we've done with good. We think virtuous acts, virtues act as credit for God. We can't bear the weight of our own sin, but we try we beat ourselves up. We blame ourselves for doing that thing that we didn't want to do again. And we say things like, I can never forgive myself. You can't clean yourself no matter how many times you meditate, but we try. But we know it's deeper than that. Like Lady Macbeth said, out damn spot. There's like something there. We want it away. We want it out. But it's deeper than skin. And you can't get yourself back in. You don't know the way to human flourishing or shalom. You can't flourish on your own. Only God does. The rest of our series will deal with what getting back into the life with God looks like and how we are removed from the presence and the power of sin. But let me say this today, is that what we need is a new heart. If our heart's the problem, if Jesus promised, in the Old Testament, we, we went through this when we, discussed, when we went through John chapter 3, is that um, the Old Testament promises that when, when Jesus comes, when the Messiah comes, he would give us a new heart. And he would fill us with his spirit. And his spirit is the same word for breath or wind. In Genesis chapter 2, God created humanity and man and breathed into him his spirit. 
we get the spirit of God in us. We get the life of God in us. We need a new heart. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, the almost impossibly hard thing to do is to hand over your whole self to Christ. But it is far easier than what we are all trying to do instead. For what we are trying to do is remain what we call ourselves, our personal happiness centered on money or pleasure or ambition, and hoping, despite this, to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. And that is exactly what Christ warned us you cannot do. If I am a grass field, all the cutting will keep the grass less, but it won't produce wheat. If I want wheat, I must be plowed up and resung. We can keep trying and trying and trying with this heart, this heart of ours, to produce all these good things. But what we need to do is be plowed up and re-sown. We need a, a new heart. Jesus talks about in John uh, a new birth, that flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. We need the spirit of God to birth something in us, something new. We need the spirit of God to give us a new life, a new heart. We need that, but it starts with a humility. It has to start with the humility. It has to start with this humble posture towards God. It's like, God, I, might, I don't know everything. And I don't, I don't know what's good. Only you do. And Lord, I need a new heart. And so I'm, I'm like submitting my whole life to you to uproot it and replant it. That's the posture that God wants. That's the, that's the posture of humility. That's the opposite of pride. That's the opposite of, I know what's best for me. I know this might not sit well with a lot of people, and I get that. I get that this is not necessarily self-help popular. But I, what I do know is that what, what our world needs and what our town needs are people with new hearts and new spirits that are scattered all throughout this, this city bringing about love and truth and the peace and the presence of God where they are. And it can't be done with old hearts. We need new hearts.